Father, we pray that this time will not be in any way wasted for any of us, that you would use this time by the power of your Holy Spirit with your word and impact all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now up here, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that, say, we have passengers on an airplane. And this particular passenger, the story just comes up and brings this passenger a parachute. Now, the story actually tells the passenger, put this parachute on, it will improve your flight. <laughs> now, the passenger is skeptical about how putting a parachute on could possibly improve his flight. So as a bit of an experiment, he decides to try it on. So he puts on the parachute. It went better first service. <laughs> he puts on a parachute and he sits down and he thinks, I don't know how this is going to improve my flight, but the stewardess said it would. The first thing he notices is that it's really it's heavy on his shoulders. It's uncomfortable and he can't really sit right in the plane. But he said, but she said it would improve my flight, so I'll give it a little longer, see if it'll happen. And then he notices that the other passengers begin to make fun of him. They're pointing at him, and they're laughing at him, and, and he's thinking, you know, this is, this is not comfortable. It's not improving my flight. Plus, I've got people mocking me. So he kind of sinks down in his chair, and he slips off the parachute, and he says, you know what? This isn't working. Takes it off, and he just throws it in the aisle, and he feels disillusioned about this whole promise that it would improve his flight. He's embittered towards the stewardess for talking him into this embarrassment. And he's thinking, you know what? <clears throat> I'll never put one of these on again. All right, I want you to imagine a separate, a second passenger. And this passenger, the stewardess comes up to him and says, I'd like you to put on this parachute because at 25,000 feet, you're going to have to jump from the plane. And he's thinking, okay. So he puts on the parachute thinking, if I'm going to have to jump at 25,000 feet, I sure want one of these on. So he puts the parachute on, and he sits down, and he, he notices it's still heavy. This, this part notices it's still heavy. He notices it's uncomfortable to sit, but he's thinking, but I don't care because at 25,000 feet, I'm going to have to jump, and I want this parachute on. And then when they begin to mock him for wearing a parachute, he's thinking, it doesn't bother me, you know. You're going to have to jump too. But he keeps on the parachute, and there's even a kind of a deep-seated peace and joy that goes along with it, knowing that he's going to be safe and saved when it's time to jump. Now, I want you to think about each of these and their motive. The motive of the first passenger was what? The motive for putting on the parachute was that he might improve his flight. So he puts it on. It doesn't improve his flight at all. In fact, it makes it actually worse. His sole reason was to improve his flight. Instead of improving it, he's also, in addition to being uncomfortable, he's being mocked. He's being humiliated by the other passengers. He's embittered toward the stewardess for talking him into the, th into, into the first place. And so he takes off the parachute. It doesn't work. Now, the second man puts on a parachute with a motive of simply being prepared to survive the jump. 
because of the knowledge that he's prepared for this jump, he also has this deep-rooted peace in his heart. He's got a joy knowing he's going to be saved from certain death. And even though he's being mocked by the other passengers, he's thinking, I don't care about that. And he has this heartfelt gratitude to the stewardess who gave him the parachute. Now, I want you to just think about that contrast between those two passengers. Because today, modern-day evangelists, more often than not, appeal, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will make you happy, and he will improve your flight. So the sinner responds in kind of an experiment. He puts on the Savior Jesus to see if those claims come true. And what does he find out? He finds out that he has the same problems he had before and even more. Everything Jesus said he would have. In this world, you have tribulation and persecution. So he finds out that life is still difficult and in some ways even more difficult. So what does he do? Well, he takes off the Lord Jesus Christ. Disillusioned, even embittered, and we have another backslider. Instead of preaching that Jesus will improve your flight, we should be warning sinners that one day you're going to have to jump out of the plane. It's appointed once for a man to die, then comes judgment. You know, when a sinner really understands the horrific consequences of breaking the law of God, then they want, they need to, they want, they'll want to flee to the Savior in genuine repentance to escape the judgment, the wrath to come. Now, the reason the second passenger has this joy and peace in their heart is because they, ha- they know this parachute is going to save them. In the same way, a Christian can have a deep-seated peace and joy because they know the righteousness of Christ is going to deliver them from the wrath to come. Now, with this in mind, I want you to think about another incident on the plane with the second passenger who put on the parachute because he knows he's going to have to jump. I want you to imagine on that, you know, that, that passenger, let's say the stewardess is fairly new. She comes down the aisle and she trips over her foot and she spills boiling hot coffee on his lap. Now, does he think, oh, man. That hurts so much, I'm taking off the parachute. So he takes off the parachute and throws it down. No, does he do that? No, because he didn't put the parachute on in the first place to improve his flight. So he's glad he's got the parachute. In fact, he's probably even more glad than before because now after that hot coffee hit him, he's looking forward to the jump. Now, why is it that 94% of those who, make a, those who make a decision for Christ at an evangelistic campaign fall away and never get incorporated into a church? 94%. Now, many years ago, I used to think, well, we just didn't do a very good job with follow-up. But think about this, like Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, he had zero follow-up on the way back to Africa, and had an impact on the nation. He had God in his word. See, I know that I didn't didn't need any follow-up. When I came to follow Christ as a college student, I was running after the, the people who were leading ministries, asking them what to do next. They didn't have to hunt me down. I was looking for them. 
See, I don't know how you can have a true conversion with the Holy Spirit really entering into your life and not be changed. See, I think the problem is that there are so many people that have not truly been converted. They've not truly been born again. They've not been told the truth about the gospel and what the necessary response is. See, we've got to make sure that we are preaching the message they're preaching in the book of Acts if you want to see the results they saw in the book of Acts. So what is the message that Jesus preached and the message the apostles preached? Is that the same message that a lot of evangelists are preaching today? And I propose to you it's not. So let's look again at what Jesus preached, first of all. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of God is available. You can become a citizen of the kingdom of God because the king is here. How? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in this good news of Jesus as Savior and Lord. All right, let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, we know exactly what he preached, here it is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's available. What do you got to do? Repent. Repent. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, now we have the apostle Peter preaching. We know that we see that he learned from Jesus how to preach. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again in Acts, we get to chapter 3, verse 19. What's the message? Here it is. Therefore, repent and turn, return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, are you beginning to see something different in the message that they preach and the message that evangelists oftentimes are preaching today? They were told <clears throat> to repent. One time we had an outreach at UTA, and we had about 10,000 high school students come to the UTA uh, you know, uh, football field arena, and they had the youth pastors asked me if I'd kind of be their, you know, their covering as the youth pastors came together. And so I agreed to do that. And the youth pastors invited this guy from like Mich the state of Michigan to come down and preach. So the whole, so it's like four nights. The whole first night he preaches and never mentions sin or repentance. Whole night. So I, I told the guys, I said, guys, he's got to talk about sin. If you don't know about sin, you don't know that you need a savior. Sin, and he's talking about repenting. Next night, he preaches again. He doesn't say anything about sin or repentance. So I met with the youth pastor's lead team, and I said, guys, if he's not going to preach about sin and repentance, he can't, he can't preach again here. We're got, we'll bring someone else in, one of you guys or me or somebody, but he's not doing it again if he can't preach about sin and repentance. And so they talked to him, and he, you know, he reluctantly agreed to preach about the need to repent. But see, if... But Jesus says in Luke, you know, chapter 13, he says, unless you repent, you perish. 
it's clear, clearly a message is a message of the need for repentance. Now, in order to repent, you must know that what you're repenting from. To repent is to turn away from sin. It's to turn away from self-centered sinfulness. Turn away from it. So in order to repent, you must know you have a sin problem. Or the word makes no sense. And you must know the consequences of not repenting, which is judgment to come. That's why you repent, because if you don't, judgment's coming. The Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die, then comes judgment. Today's evangelism, many ask, do you want a better life? In other words, do you want a better flight? Do you want to be happier? Ask Jesus to come into your life and he'll make you happy. Do you want to have meaning and purpose in your life? Now, these things are byproducts of running to Jesus because you, you know, need a Savior, but that's not why we go to him. We, we repent from sin and we turn to him as Savior and Lord. So there's so many people in these evangelistic crusades that just aren't converted because they haven't been preached the truth and the response that they, they need to have. By the way, it's not all their fault. It's the fault also of those who've been preaching this message and you know, replicating it all over the world. So my question is, as we get into this message, have you truly been converted? Do you know for sure that you have, that you're born again? Have you truly repented, turned away from sinful self-centeredness and turned to Jesus as Savior and Lord? I have people say to me all the time, well, I've accepted Christ. And I, I say, well, you know, that, that, that terminology is never actually used in the Bible, accepting Christ. In fact, you don't accept Christ when you understand that your, your sinfulness and, your, and the judgment to come, you flee to Christ. If you don't, then you face judgment. You'll face judgment. So I want to talk a little bit about the judgment of God today because we've been doing this series titled God's Grand Story, the story of the Bible. We summarize the Old Testament in the six parts. If you remember, we have beginnings, then we have wilderness wanderings, then we have promised land. Then we have a united kingdom of Israel. The fifth part is a divided kingdom. If you remember that the ten Northern tribes separate from the two southern tribes. The ten northern tribes is then called Israel. First and second Kings and first and second Chronicles in your Bible, they're called Israel, those ten tribes. And then the two tribes that are separated from the ten tribes are called Judah, and that's the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Now, God sends prophets to both of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom to call them back to himself. And he sends the ten northern tribes called Israel, he sends them prophets and he sends the two southern tribes called Judah prophets to repent. Repent from idolatry and return to him. Let's look at this passage. Second Chronicles 36, verse 15 and 16 is a good summary of this. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. 
So about 200 years and 19 kings after Solomon, the northern kingdom was invaded by Assyria. And in spite of these dramatic ministries of Elijah and Elisha and the words of other prophetic voices, none of the kings in the northern kingdoms for those 200 years repented, not one. Well, just as God said through Moses and Joshua centuries earlier, he said that he would, if, if his people turn away from him, break the covenant, that he would bring people from a distant nation against them. And he's doing that right here in judgment by bringing Assyria. What I want you to see is God gave them plenty of time, 200 years of prophets calling them again and again to repent. And they would not. So God sends judgment. Yes, Syria comes and, and devastates northern tribes of Israel and then resettles the land with their own people. In fact, it's interesting, if you want to know where Samaritans actually came from, the Israelites who remained in that land intermarried with the foreigners from Assyria who came and they formed a mixed breed of people called Samaritans who were despised by the, quote-unquote, pure Jews centuries later, as we read about in the Gospels during the time of Jesus. So over a century later now, Judah, those two southern tribes, is also judged by a series of invasions from Babylon. So some of the Jewish leaders are actually taken captive back to Babylon. Ezekiel prophesied during this time in the early, with the early exiles, and then Jeremiah prophesied in Jerusalem. And in the third invasion of the southern kingdom of ba you know, by Babylon, Jerusalem was destroyed. Much of the population is killed or exiled. And they, this siege, they, siege, they put the city under siege for two years, causing starvation and thirst, uns just unspeakable, horrific circumstances, and still they would not repent and turn to God, return to God. Even after national devastation, humiliation. So this is like a, a major crisis in the history of Israel. So this covenant people of Israel now will never be quite the same again as we read through the Bible. I mean, they would, as we read through the Bible, return to the land, some trickling back in for decades, but they never had the kind of kingdom they could have had if they wouldn't have broken the covenant with God. Their lack of love for God and their disobedience resulted and more agony and pain than they could have imagined, and God brings judgment. I just want you to see that God comes to a point where there's no longer, you know, there's no longer any more time for repentance. Judgment is coming. Judgment has been decided. There's no remedy anymore. There reaches a time where God is going to judge. Let's read the passage again. Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. Until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. But God sent the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom. He sent the Babylonians to overtake the southern kingdom of Judah. But God reaches a point, he reaches a time where there's no more warnings coming. 
There's no more opportunity for repentance. That time has come and gone, and it's time for judgment. So we see that happen in, our, in the Bible, and we see it in the Old Testament. But I want you to know it's going to happen for all of us, too. Hebrews 9, verse 27, it is appointed, appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Every one of us in this room, everyone watching online, is going to die. Unless Jesus comes again before that time, you and I are going to die. Last time I checked, the mortality rate is, running, is hovering right about 100%. Every one of us is going to to die. Now, most people live their lives like that's not going to happen. Most people don't want to think about dying. They don't want to talk about dying. And I can prove it to you. Invite some friends over for coffee and cake tonight and say, 8 o'clock at my house, we're going to talk about death. See how many people want to come to that meeting. People don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. But you're going to die. And I'm going to die. It's going to happen. There's kind of a time where put your pencils down. The test is over for all of us. Then what? Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Then comes judgment. Now, what's that going to be like? I think a lot of people try to imagine what would judgment day be like. Well, you don't have to imagine because the Bible describes it for us. Let's look at it. Revelation 20, verse 11 through verse 15. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, what a horrifying time to think about. A time, it says, when books are opened. And based on what he says about being judged from according to our deeds, then in those books... Somewhere is your name. And then following your name is every sin you ever did your whole life. Every sin. Everything you did you shouldn't have done. Everything you should have done didn't do. Every word you shouldn't have spoken. Every thought you shouldn't have meditated on, thought about. Every sin written in a book. Now Psalm 50 verse 21 says this. God speaking, he says, these things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. 
So he's saying, these things you've done, and I kept silent. In other words, we, you know, when you sinned and the hammer didn't fall, you're thinking, well, maybe that wasn't that big a deal with God. He kept silent. But in the silence, he's writing it all down. Book. He says, you think I'm like you. other words, you know how we are. We sin. Well, yeah, yeah, Lord, you know, it's really not my fault. And you, you, know, my, you, know, my, you know my intentions. And, you know, this happened. And we have all these excuses. And God says, I'm not like that. I'm not like you. I'm going to state the case before your eyes. In all those moments, he's writing it all down. What a horrifying thing to think about, that a judgment coming where everything you could possibly be thinking of how shameful it was, guilty of. W.C. Fields, the actor before he died, was in the hospital room, and someone came into the room, and, and he was thumbing through a Bible. And they said, Fields, what are you doing reading that Bible? He said, looking for loopholes. Well, there aren't any loopholes on Judgment Day. What's it going to be like? Well, I want to give us a little bit of a visual here. So he says books, plural, built. we don't know how many books. I think there might be a mountain of them. But he says books will be open and each person will be judged by the things in the book. So somewhere in there is your name and my name and then every sin we've ever done written down. And then he says, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> reprove you, and judgment's going to happen. And then, remember, this is a great white throne judgment. The judge is sitting there, and then the gavel falls. <laughs> guilty, guilty, guilty. And then that person is drug off to the lake of fire where the judgment for all their sins takes place, where Jesus said, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And what ho- it's a horrific time to think about. But it's real. That's what God says. His word says it's going to happen. That day is coming. Now, is there any way to prepare for that day up there while you're still down here? The answer is yes. Only one way. There's only one way. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We can repent, like Jesus said, repent, and we can run to him as the Savior and Lord of our life. And then it's a very different situation. True repentance, turning away from self-centered sinfulness and turning to Jesus, a Savior and Lord. By the way, let me remind you, he is Savior and Lord. You can't cut him in half and say, I want the Savior part and not the Lord part. You can't have half of them. He's Savior and Lord. So you turn to him as Savior and Lord of your life. And if that's you, if you've truly done that, then there's a very different scene that happens. I want you to imagine that it's your turn. The book was opened and your name's called. And I want you to imagine that those proceedings are interrupted by somebody who walks into the courtroom and he's got hair white as wool. He's got a robe that's white down to his feet and it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And his face shines like the sun. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And he stops the proceedings and he says, that one belongs to me. Because in his hand is Lamb's book of life. He says, that one, I've already paid for their sins. They've already been judged. That's why if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you don't have to go into that great right throne judgment because he already took your judgment. 
See, when he hangs on the cross for our sins, he takes all of your sins upon himself, and then he absorbs the judgment of those sins. So your sins have already been judged, so there's no judgment coming for you. You know, it's interesting that when the pioneers came across America trying to homestead land, there was one particular uh, uh, group of wagon train, you know, wagon train that came through that was going to homestead a land. It was a large group, and as they were making their way across the western plains, there was a fire in the stretch very wide coming at them. The wind was blowing right toward them. And they thought, oh, no. And they thought, well, we can't go back to the river. It's too far away that we crossed the river a couple days ago. So what are we going to do? Well, one of the pioneers had this brilliant idea. He says, let's set the grass behind us on fire because the wind will blow it away from us, burning all that grass. They did it. And then they moved the whole wagon train back on all the burnt grass. And one little girl screamed as the fire kept coming closer and closer, is it going to get to us? And when the pioneers said, no, it's not going to get to us because we're standing where the fire's already been. See, if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you're standing where the fire's already been. Judgment's already happened. There's not, you're not going to have to be at the great white throne judgment because he already took your judgment on the cross. For all those who have repented and then flee to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. So have you done that? We're about to move into Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Easter Sunday. And so as we head into that time, do you know for sure that you are born again? Have you really repented, turned to Jesus as Savior and Lord? Are you sure that you've done that? I mean, judgment is coming. Do you know for sure? Let's all stand. We're going to close. I want to ask Larry and Aubrey to come on up. There's a song that we're going to sing here in just a moment. The song is entitled, Run to the Mercy Seat. Run to the Mercy Seat. Now, the Mercy Seat in the Old Testament is fulfilled by Christ. So we flee to him. That's where we find mercy and forgiveness. Christ. And as we close this with this song, if you haven't done this before, let today be the day where you repent. Turn away, turn away from self-centered sinfulness and just come down here to the front. And we're going to pray over you and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior and Lord. If that's you, then I'm going to ask you to slip out of your seat and come down here. Now, some of you are thinking, you know what? I, I'm, not sure if it, I'm not sure today. Then I say, make sure today. Let this be the day you make sure. By just getting on your seat and coming down saying, I repent of self-centered sinfulness and I'm turning to you, Jesus, Savior and Lord. Now, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to do that just a moment, those of you that need to do that today. Now, some of you are thinking, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to walk out the aisle. I mean, I'm being embarrassed. I'm like, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of him before men, he'll be ashamed of you before when he comes to the holy angels and the glory of the Father. You don't want him ashamed of you. So this is a time to just say, Lord, I need you, and flee. Run to the mercy seat. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into this song. Father, you know exactly where everyone in this room is spiritually. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, you don't let anybody walk out of here that not knowing you today. Lord, I pray that this would be a day where by the power of your Spirit, where every heart that doesn't know you, or maybe just they're not sure that this would be a day, Lord, where they just turn to you. 
as Savior, Lord, and they flee the wrath to come. They, Lord, they embrace you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord, as you absorb their judgment. So, Lord, we pray now by the power of your Spirit, Lord, this will be a holy place and a holy time. In Jesus' name. So as we sing, if that's you, slip out and come on down. In the darkness, everything is unknown. Face the power of sin on my own. I did not know of a place I could go. Jesus, we're so, so, so grateful 
that you are Savior, our Lord. We're so grateful that you made a way for us to avoid that horrible time of judgment by becoming, Lord, our sacrifice and absorbing our judgment, dying our death. We thank you. And those of you that have come forward for the first time when you weren't sure, they just say, Jesus, I, I repent and I just turn to you as Savior and Lord. Just tell them that. He's never said no to anyone who's told him that. Just say, Lord, I repent and I just turn to you as Savior and Lord today. And Lord, all of us, we say thank you, Lord, that you're our Lord and Savior today. Lord, we pray that you would just use us, Lord, this week to connect with others that you're drawing to yourself. Lord, in our places where we live, work, play, Lord, that you would, you would just really intersect us with those that you are drawn to yourself this week in the name of Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you so much for this holy week that's coming. We pray, Lord, that you would pull the nets in around the world. This would be the, the largest haul, the greatest harvest in all time in history. We pray in Jesus' mighty name.